I love the count. It's very exciting. In five, four, three, two, one. Welcome, everybody, to another fine episode of everyone's favorite podcast, STTNG's Not Another Star Trek Podcast, starring two of your favorite people. One of them's me, I'm Andrew, and the other... Ensign Dave. Ensign Dave. He's my number one. Number one? I'd like you to lead my away team, Dave. You know what this is? What is this? It's the podcast where we ask you to lean back, kick your feet up, and engage. Oh, my God. This is a podcast where you will hear so many bad imitations. Well, well, well let's tell everybody what we're doing here first. Okay. Here's what we're doing. What we're doing is we are going through Star Trek The Next Generation, a show that was very influential in our lives. We're watching the episodes again from the lens of our older selves. That's right. And we're kind of chatting about it, reflecting, pointing out the fun bits, the weird bits, the painful bits. What's good, what's bad, what's what's beautiful, what's bald, too. Wow, the bald and the beautiful. Do you know, do you know how many episodes there are of this sucker, though? Quite a few. 178 episodes. I, I believe we will get through these by the time we're both uh, in our 60s. By the time we're both Jean-Luc Picard's age. So, Dave. Yes? This is our first real episode. We did some teaser episodes where we went back into the archives of the old, old show. The original series. Now we're dealing with the newer old Star Trek. So, Dave, what is the name of the episode we're going to be talking about tonight? Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. Farpoint Station. <laughs> what is Did it at Farpoint? Hang, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Tonight's episode. Encounter at far point, 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 point. Okay, wait, hold on. Uh, Andrew, it's Encounter at Far Point. The two-hour series premiere. Yeah, the beginning. The beginning of the whole thing is what it was. And how freaked out How freaked out were you about this when uh, you were young? How, first of all, how old were you? What, uh, where were you? I was uh, 17, living in Southern California, and... It, it it was a big deal that this was coming back for me in my life. It was me and my younger brother are watching it, waiting. We were waiting. And this is like before all this surge in like fan appreciation, you know, where we're returning to old shows, where we're getting our Sabrinas or we're getting our Cheers reunion show or whatever. This is like the first, I think, of this kind of a resurgence in shows, probably inspired by the franchise of the movies being being brought back in the same way, the original movies. Someone someone realizing there's more money to be made. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't always have to be about money. Can it be about love? Loving the fans? Yeah, so so we were, I remember we were, I was in high school and we were, my brother and I were watching this and waiting. We were waiting and talking about this episode. We couldn't, well, what's it going to be like? And, you know, who are the characters going to be and all this? And there's no online anything to look at, so there was there wasn't much to know about the show before it actually launched. So when when I saw it the first time, it was just you know taking it in for what it was. I didn't really know a thing about it. I think that's a good point, though. I mean, I, I, I want to because unlike so many other things that we see now, either on TV or in the movies, we know so so much even right. before the thing starts, and a lot of opinions are formed before it even begins. Whereas for this, it was a complete mystery in many ways. I mean, we had some sense of who the cast was going to be, but how exactly this was going to unfold. And I think, I, if anything, I would have read about it in a TV guide or <laughs> right. um, 
maybe maybe Starlog magazine. I don't know if you remember Starlog magazine. I did get Starlogs. So I, I probably did see early images of that. And I think Entertainment Weekly was around at that point. But I was 21, mm. uh, living with my mom, had no idea what to expect this to be like. It was kind of a niche thing for me, but I was used to sort of being, you know, like loving niche things like Doctor Who and so on. Yeah, you're a super big Doctor Who fan your whole life. And still, and still. <laughs> in real life. In your whole life, in your whole life. In my I whole, said, no, I like it in my real life. life. My real life makes more sense. You're real, in your real life, you're wearing that big dumb scarf everywhere like Doctor Who does. <laughs> That's what you're doing. My mom made me that scarf. Shut up. <laughs> and, and, you know, the fact that it was going to be in syndication was a huge deal. One thing I did know from reading the stuff that I had read is that the original series had been jerked around by CBS so much. Right. And there was all the, you know, initial fan action was taking place around Star Trek, the original series. Right. So, I mean, there were a lot of expectations here, but also the fact that, you know, they were going to be unfettered. This time they don't have to worry about a network breathing down their neck. Right. They can actually do their show. I, you know, I remember being really excited about that point too. And then, and then also being very disappointed. I, I was not necessarily disappointed in the episode itself, but being disappointed in that it was very much like what was on television at the time. You know, I had expected something way bigger storytelling wise than that. Really? Because what else? I mean, Beauty and the Beast was on. Ron Perlman and Linda Hamilton. I'm not saying it wasn't the, probably the best thing that was on television at that time, because it really was good. I did not want to see episodic television. I guess that was my whole, that, that was my major problem with it. I just didn't want to see like one episode in the can, and then everything is reset the next episode. So looking at what's on in 1986 in terms of science fiction television, mm. this, is, this, is, this is pretty bad. I mean, the, the, the big sci-fi, your big sci-fi efforts are Knight Rider and ALF and Beauty and the Beast. Well, geez, why didn't we do a Knight Rider show? I mean, we could do a whole podcast, but we go through all the episodes of Knight Rider. Yeah. Man, there's some deep cultural stuff that they're digging through back then, 1987. We might be able to find time to, you know, have a very special episode of SDTNGs. Mm. When this show came out, as disappointed as I was about some elements of it, I was also very conscious of the fact that there was nothing like this on television at the time. And I mean nothing. Giant space opera, you know, laser guns, aliens everywhere. This was a serious investment in science fiction, especially after the initial blush of Star Wars wore off. Right. You know, in 76, and then you had all that stuff like Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> That's right. I was trying to think of the good good examples of precursors, and th those those two would be good. And, I wouldn't say they'd be good. They would be – I think they paved the way to show, especially the Buck Rogers show, showing that there's an audience out there to watch this science fiction nonsense. Wow, you have a very, very optimistic view of <laughs> Buck Rogers. Show, that show. Buck Rogers, oh, I love that. I love um, Dr. Theopolis and – what, what's it's, the Twiggy? Is it Twiggy? Biggie, Biggie, yeah, Biggie, Biggie, Biggie Buck. It's the voice of, of Mel Blanc. Oh, is the, it? The voice of Warner Brothers is the voice of uh, Twiggy. Oh, I'm sad to hear that that was like one of his last voices. Bigga, bigga, bigga. You know who'd be great for this? Bigga, bigga, bigga. I'm desperate for a check, Buck. Please let me live indoors. Bigga, bigga, bigga. I mean, this this was a huge bit of innovation, and expectations were high. And remember, folks. 
what we had before was the original series and a couple of movies. We had no idea what this thing was going to look like, but right. we thought it was going to look like the original series and and the movies, but right. but it didn't. Didn't it come after Star Trek Four, the whale one, as you like to call it? <laughs> I think you like to call it that. <laughs> the, the whale one. This is my memory of Star Trek Four, and this could be totally wrong. The credit, the end credit sequence of Star Trek Four. I believe they play the next generation music in the end credits. We're going to have to look that up. Right, we'll I have to look. But I like to say with some kind of authority, I'm, I, I'm sure they play that music at the end, and I and I think they were in production of this of this show at that point. Well, let me get back to a minute, if you don't mind, to this notion that the show is like nothing else. And part okay. of it was the special effects. And the special effects, again, Alf. Alf and Ron Perlman dress up like a giant cat. <laughs> These were the special effects. David Letterman used to make fun of, of Beauty and the Beast all the time. And there's one thing where Ron Perlman's beast, uh, Vincent, likes to travel how much do you know about this well, hang on. he climbs on the top of the subway train right uh-huh. so they had like this green screen behind him and you see him clinging to a car it's really awful but that's the special effects and right. you compare it to this 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 giant starship floating through through space and that sort of tour of all the planets of the solar system which is you know interesting but Stunning. I mean, it really did blow everything away. The special effects are great in that opening sequence. But then also, I remember really liking the fact that we're starting from Earth and this idea that we're moving out from our our, our actual solar system into the galaxy. And that's something that I always, I think, was missing from the original series, that these people were were from Earth, because you never really saw that until they brought the movies in. And you saw them building, you know, spaceships around Earth and that kind of stuff. And the special effects are, are excellent right there. Yes. It, it, it's disappointing later on in the episode when you see them, you know, you see these creatures or, or that creature is yeah. bombarding the old bandy city. And it's so obviously a really bad model. And they, they don't even, obviously, they, they spent all the money. Right. So they didn't have any money to actually have any people in the old bandy city. We were very concerned right. what looked like a bunch of, you know, adobe houses are being bombed. Well, you know because what I, they spent all the money on that that saucer separation. You know what I liked about that city, though? When I saw that model, there's so few practical effects anymore in movies and TV that you can actually see. You know, you assume right. that everything is, you know, CG'd in and animated. And even when it's not, I'm always looking for the seams. Like, is that real? Is he really holding that on camera? Or is that like a real thing? I right. mean, because they're, they're almost always standing in front of some green screen somewhere. And I saw that. It's like, oh, there's like a, a, there's a little model that they built for this. And it was so cute. Like, it's so quaint. <laughs> it, it reminded me of the old show. And then you realize that this show, I mean, this is 30 years ago still now. And this is a long time ago. And it still had a foot in the old world of, of TV and movie making. It still it still had some of those old right. those old artifacts. And you'll see it in, in, in later episodes, too, in the first season, especially. They're doing that thing where it's basically a backdrop. Right. You know, like a red backdrop and and some some setting on a, <laughs> an indoor studio. Right. They basically put a big fat bunch of lights with gels on them and shine them up on right. the white and it looks like, you know, you got a red sky or yeah, or whatever. The special effects by and large are obviously much improved as we go on, you know, when we start getting more and more into the forehead of the week. The makeup is still it's not the best here, and the lighting is really bad. 
Right. And it's really like up until the third season that the lighting, I may be wrong, but I think they redesigned that bridge set a little bit. So it gets, either they start shooting it better. So it looks a little roomier and less cheap. Right. But you know, it looks kind of chintzy here as, as, as wonderful as it was, it still had that kind of the feel of a, a, a stage. Yeah. You know, one of the things I liked about the bridge, even here, you get even in this first episode is that there's this uh, it's almost a 360 camera movement around the whole bridge in one of the shots yes yes and it's showing you like every surface every wall of that bridge like it's this enclosed place and it makes it feel makes it feel more real and i remember at the time seeing that shot and thinking wow that's cool because i was always frustrated by the original show and how you'd have these reaction shots and people looking out at, at things and they clearly you know they're clearly there's a camera crew on the other side of all that and it, it just it always felt like right. a, it always felt like right. a set and that having that motion through that space was really cool and i know that i know that the really the stage is really small they end up using some of the same insert and reaction shots just like they did in the original show anyways but it, it was still kind of cool to see that that is one of the there are several things that continue to pester me because i'm just this way but the fact that that bridge is on the top of the ship is the stupidest thing in the world because it's a virtual. It doesn't need to be on the top of the window. Right. You could put it in the middle of the ship. But you, So you take your command crew and your most essential, vital uh, right. operations, and you stick them right there under a big-ass dome on the top of the ship. <laughs> really? Put a big target on it. That And the, the other thing that's always bothered me about the Next Generation Bridge is that stupid wood you don't like the wood paneling i've never liked the wood paneling and i've never it's like is this someone's den it's very much from the 80s or late 80s that whole that's when yeah. they started with the faux wood paneling inside cars again and the the whole inside of the bridge has this it's supposed to look it's supposed to look high tech but when you look back now it looks like they were at carpeteria if anybody remembers <laughs> That place. I mean, it's just like wall-to-wall carpets on everything. Like, why would you have carpets in this spaceship? I mean, it would make sense. You wouldn't have you wouldn't have any of that. And there's there's you know there's a bunch of other sort of dated things that that come from that world of the wood paneling. You know the yeah. I think it'd be interesting to talk about the like the logic to some of the rooms and spaces and the tech that they put into that right. Right. I know that one of the things that bothers you the most is the, this ready room. Yes. That's where I think this show has a direct link to L.A. law. It, it feels very much like a legal office in the on the ship. Oh, right. It's, the, it's, actually, it's not the ready room. I mean, that's where they, that does bother me because, like, the captain has an office right off the bridge, right. and he just goes there and screws around, and everyone's like, well, what's he doing? And and. <laughs> But then there's that weird conference room that they go into. That's what. That's not the ready room. The conference room that's is no. The, oh, all right. The ready room is just where the captain hangs out. That's where he does his thinking. That's right, right. where his fish are. Is that where the is that where the tea machine is? The yes, the the Earl Grey hot. And then he has uh, his own separate quarters, which we see a couple of different times. So the ready room is not where he's sleeping. No, 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 no. That's his. That's his office. I have so much to learn about uh, about Picard again. Well, we need to talk about Picard because, you know, we're used to Kirk. Right. Who's this guy? Again, obviously, as you can, uh, audience can probably figure out, I'm someone who holds like a lot of geeky grudges, geeky things bug the shit out of me. Like, why in, in the name of heaven would you have a Frenchman being played by a Brit? The Brits 
And I was just talking today with a friend of mine about Brexit. The Brits hate everyone, and right. everyone hates the Brits when it comes to Europe. Britain and France have been in a constant state of physical war mm-hmm. for centuries, and then economic and political and cultural war after that. You couldn't find just a Frenchman? But, right. But don't you, I mean, I always saw- Or just make him British. I always saw it as this optimistic future where even the French and the Brits are now getting along. Like you could be born in <laughs> in France and just move right across to England. And, and that that's the world I saw. I, I can't remember what the whole, I know we get into his family story, but- Yeah, we do. After the Borg. Yeah, I know there's the French roots of the family and how they ever get to England. I, I, I mean, you know, well, they're, they're not going to have – why would the guy even have an accent at that point in that, you know, that far in the future? Right. There'd, be, right. there'd be a one-earth accent. There's not going to be his – This regional. Yeah, definitely. This, And that's the other thing that irks me about it is he is so insistent on his French heritage – when the whole point to this is kind of, you know, all that, all these sort of racial and, and ethnic and cultural silos have come down and we're all one big race of humans. Yeah. But no, he's, he's a Frenchman and there's no one else on the ship at any point who is sticking to their nationality at a time when the nations aren't supposed to exist right. anymore than this guy. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good point. I think that's the, probably the most Kirk, ish thing about him you know kirk is that kind of belligerent love of america you don't necessarily know exactly where kirk is from in the u.s i think on the show iowa yeah you find out later you find out i think in the movies that he's from iowa right i don't know maybe that's some sort of nod to kirk or you know this 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 rigidness that the captain has to have in some way I don't know. It's a lot to it's a lot to it's a lot to take apart that picard and i think we're going to be doing that because it's it's interesting to see how you know, he evolves, he becomes less rigid. Right. What I was thinking when I first watched this, when I wasn't, I mean, I mean, I love Picard. He's, he's definitely a great character. But when I first watched this episode, I saw him and I, I thought, what, why? Like what, what, what is happening? Like why? Oh, yeah, I, I did not like him. I did not like him. But th- doesn't it seem counterintuitive? And it seems like I've been listening to some Gene Roddenberry interviews lately because we're doing this, you know, in some ways he was this, revolutionary sci-fi character who kind of, you know, stuck it to the man at the studios and all this, trying to make the shows that he wanted to make. But in other ways, he's kind of like a old fashioned Joss Whedon where he's, where he's out there just doing what he wants to do. And he's like, I'm going to make a show where you got this grumpy old captain that you're going to learn to love. But, but how is that, how is that a good idea to get to keep an audience to have this grumpy guy come on? And he's, he's not, he's unpleasant through a lot of the first episode. It's, it's like he has, uh, that, that gruff exterior conceals a soft heart because he's, he's he clearly has a soft spot for Crusher. Right, right, right. Beverly. And even though he's aloof and cold, he's got that that stupid thing about like, well, I, I don't like children. You're, you're going to have to help me with the children. <laughs> that's, that's his Picard, my friends. Uh, one of the things I'll be working on is my Picard accent. I hope through 178 episodes, I'll be spot on. So, I'm just, I'm just going to move on. No. I'm just honestly going to move on. Because he is, he is aloof, and he has those hidden tender spots. And that thing with Crusher 
never really goes anywhere. I mean, they address it, I think, in the final season of the yeah. TV show. Yeah, they're kind but of, it never really goes anywhere. Well, in the very last episode of the the whole thing, I think it's implied that they're together on some spaceship, which is interesting because I don't think that's where they're going with the new the new Picard show. Well, there's definitely one of those flash uh, forward episodes where Everly is on a giant medical ship, and it's implied that they had been married at some point. But I don't know; it never it never comes to fruition, and I think it especially gets disrupted when Gates McFadden leaves, right? In the second season, who who's the doctor? Second doctor, Kate Pulaski. Uh, we'll we'll get to her eventually. I want to save her, yes, because she really. One of the most irritating characters ever. You think so? Um, oh there's God. another. Well, there's my. There's another. Uh, there's another L.A. Law connection. Uh, she. She was a, a, a. She was cast member of L.A. Law for a while there too. So there's a lot of crossover. Okay. So, but I. But I have to say, I, 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 I feel like you're. I feel like you're ignoring my L.A. Law connection to this whole thing. I am not ignoring your L.A. Law connection. I just don't know what to do with it. Oh, there's a lot to do point. with it. You'll, you'll. You'll see. You'll see. You'll see. Well, David Ogden Styers will appear at some point. Are you going to make a mash connection as well? Exactly. It all it all comes it all it all comes back to Star Trek. Yeah, it all comes full circle. TNG. If only Alan Alda had been the Doctor. Anyway, I want to say about Picard that even with all these this nitpicking, and yes, we love Picard now, and and certainly Picard has emerged to be one of the biggest stars in the Star Trek universe. When he right, says that right. first that that first engage engage, it was like. <laughs> <laughs> He, you know what I realized? Engage. But it was just very subtle. The first one was like, engage. Yeah, yeah. No, he doesn't. He didn't make a big deal out of it. There's but, you know, I would love to have been in the room and heard the conversation between Patrick Stewart and Roddenberry or whoever and said, you know, you know, you know, you need you need a catchphrase. You need something that you say all the time. And and that like that word, the, the his two catchphrases, there's engage. Right. And then there's yes. make it so. Yes. Make it so. There's nothing to those expressions. There's nothing. Engage is one word. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's only Patrick Stewart saying it that makes it so great. Well, there, there has that technical sense to it, though, that you have no idea. There's Because there's no sense of motion inside that ship. Right. Especially in these first few seasons where everything looks really, you know, before they get the lighting down right. There is really no sense of motion. And Scotty even says it. The episode where Scotty appears, he's like, you know, you can't even feel the ship move. The plates on the original Enterprise, you could feel shift. Okay. Right. It's a galaxy class. It's a galaxy class starship. Did yes, you know that? Yes. It's a, yes, I did. It's a galaxy class. But when he says engage, it's kind of like giddy up. <laughs> it's like we're going now. That would, be, that would have been good if you said giddy up. Action. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <giddy-up>. Advance. <laughs> like, <laughs> check, please. <laughs> check, please. It could have been any number of things. Giddy up. Giddy up. You can't talk about Picard without talking about Riker. And there's, of course, there's plenty, there's a ton of characters to talk about, which we'll get through, I think, because each one of them gets their spotlight in different episodes. Mm. But the Riker-Picard relationship is key to this episode in a very subtle way, but it's also the key to the series, at least in the first couple of seasons, I think, because Riker is clearly meant to be James Kirk. I agree. It's a weird formula, though. And it confused me even in the beginning. There was going to be this curmudgeon old captain that he, you know, had to go to to get orders from or to check things out with. And, and, and my belief is that Picard ended up being way more charismatic than they thought. And that, and that dynamic didn't end up working out. And an infinitely better actor. But I, I, 
Yeah, Picard is initially like his dad. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just like this grumpy old dude. Riker says, you're not going to beam down. This is how it goes. I'm going to be there. And I guess Picard's job was just going to be up on the ship and tell him things. Yeah, I, and, and I remember feeling like that was such a boring idea. Like, yes. like, please. And, and luckily, that doesn't. that's not how it sticks. But it was certainly a boring start. <laughs> I, I want to bring up something. There's this one funny scene in this episode where he's – because Riker has not been on a Galaxy-class starship either, right? Right, right. And so there's this scene kind of – it's actually when he's on his way to find data for the first time. And he's, yes. and he's sauntering down the hall in this the ensign or something sees that he doesn't know where he is and so he asks her for advice and then she shows him that the computer is you know built into the wall and then it basically is following you everywhere and then so then he turns around and walks away and the the ensign turns around and gives him like a a a scan over checks out his ass while he's walking away and i'm like what what's happening and she's she's all like i'm sorry to see you go but i love to watch you leave Mm -hmm. but that's supposed to show that there's just like the the male crew member in the miniskirt it's supposed to show like gender equality right right? and this is this is their heavy-handed sense of gender equality i mean we know that the original series was the most reprehensible when it came to gender roles but this show does not help right so you think that you think that that look over was like uh tit for tat for uh for the original show, like this is what Kirk would have been doing. So, sure. uh, yeah, that makes sense. Women can be sexual too. Women can have appetites, <laughs> but it's so stupid. Oh well, yeah, it's- I don't know if they ever use that feature again. I'll be interested to see if we see it in the next few episodes because then after that, they do what, you're, what makes more sense, which is they hit their communicator and they say, "Hey, computer." Where's Riker? Right. Oh, yeah, he's over there. Okay. Right. You know, there's never a moment again where you're going to use that mapping feature, and they make such a big deal about it. Right. It, it's so – it's it's like the saucer separation. They make such a big deal out of it. Yeah. And then that hardly ever comes back again. Mercifully, mercifully. You also see that with the crew, because just as bad as, as Picard and Riker are against each other, Tasha Yar and Worf. Ugh. There's too, just too many damn characters. Yeah, there are. You know, they're both the same, like – Let's shoot everything now, character. Right. Yeah, you can't. And you can't. They're going to get rid of one of them. Well, they can't have. I don't think that was originally the plan. But how could you have two characters basically doing the same job and and with the same yes. temperament? I mean, right. the only th- right. the only thing that she had going for her is that she didn't have a big old pile of clay on top of her head, <laughs> which is better to look at than than Worf. I mean, Worf is just such a ungainly looking. <laughs> thing on that show i mean especially in that first episode it's just it's like is this the best klingon you could get to be on the ship yeah one of the things i want to say about i know we're going back to Riker, but i just one of the things i want to say about Worf is that you, you know there's the stupid star trek the motion picture decided they were going to make this klingon evolution thing happen because it wasn't cool enough to have klingons be just pointy-eared people like like the Vulcans, right? right? right. So, so they decided we're going to make the Klingons like these really brutal and terrifying looking things with these face appliances and all that crap. And, and then when Next Generation comes around, why couldn't they have just said, you know what, let's scrap that idea. Why do we have to be consistent and have these, these giant face appliances on? Why don't they just go back to the ears and say we de-evolved or something? Right. It, it, it's, so, it's so dumb. And that poor Michael Dorn could have been, you know, think about all the, the time he didn't have to sit in the makeup chair if that happened. And they could have just been a black Vulcan dude instead of some you know, monstrosity. Again, race is an issue in this show, and we're going to see this pretty soon in the first season because there is a probably one of the worst episodes of Star Trek ever produced in any medium coming up. But it kills me 
that LeVar Burton mm. is not the captain of this damn ship, right. that he is not the star. He was, uh, of all those people, right. he was of all those people, <laughs> he was the one with the most star cred. Right. He's relegated to being, you know, first a helmsman, eventually they'll put him in the basement and make him the engineer. Right. And then the other prominent African-American actor, of course, is Michael Dorn, who they paint green. So you have your, you know, chauffeur, who then becomes your, you know, basement guy. Right. And then you have uh, Michael Dorn playing Worf, who is this sort of bestial, you know, noble savage. Uh, it, it, it's terrible. It's just yeah. not, it's not good. Why couldn't he have been Riker or, you know, or anybody? I, I, you know. What we need to keep track of, we should probably keep a running mm. tally, is how many times he will be wrong over the course, you know, because well, his, his, his thing is always like, let's shoot right. him. And the rest of the characters are like, ugh. What is wrong with you? Worf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again? Yeah, but the, the noble savage thing, uh, uh, it, it's, well, we'll see it because it's definitely coming up. I look forward to that, I guess. Would you like to talk about Deanna Troy? Because I, I heard you mention her. I don't know what's going on with Deanna Troy. That's is what I want to talk about. Okay. So I, I've been watching footage of her and, and she's a crack up in real life at these conventions. Okay. Everybody must see this. She takes over the stage at these at these panels. And for the character, that unassuming character that she had on the show, for her to be the absolute opposite of this person, it's funny to watch. And then it's also funny to watch the the other cast members. They they kind of swing around from being amused by her, then really uncomfortable, and they're worried about what she's gonna say. And it's a fun, it's a fun watch. And then and then it made me feel better about her acting skills. Obviously, she was acting because this 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 little kind of mousy psychologist or whatever she's supposed to be is is not the same counselor counselor <laughs> counselor but that's another yeah. I mean that's another 80s artifact this idea that you would have it's like a company going to space yes and yes it's probably a really good idea to have a team of counselors all over that ship dealing with people and their psychological problems from flying around through space and going into warp speed and going to all these crazy places that would make sense but it's done in such a silly way and, and, and the thing that I don't get is this accent of hers. I've been listening to her real voice and she's got this British accent and I don't know enough about British accents to know exactly where it's from, but she's got this British accent and then she's putting on this other, this other accent, which I, I don't know what it is. Cause when she, when you hear well, speak, then you would, it's, you would think she was from France. Yeah. I don't know what it is. If you heard that British accent, you'd think she was from France because apparently that's all the French people have British accents in the future. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's what it is. I don't know. No, seriously, it, the, the two female leads in this show, one's a doctor, one's a counselor, right? right? They're both in helping positions. Yeah. One's a mom, one's an empath. Right. It is such a painful portrayal of, of women in a, in, a, in a series that has a bad record of it. I feel great joy. <laughs> I feel joy. There's so much agony. But thank God they get rid of that, right? At least they get rid of that notion that she has to actually emote the emotions <laughs> who, she's who, sensing. Who farted? Commander Worf. Ah, oh, ah, oh, it was, it was Riker. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I There's nothing useful she's doing with that. With that. Oh, the smell is so it's so awful, Captain. Riker, again, number one. 
And of course, she has a relationship with with Riker. And that's the other thing that really bothers me Mm. about Troy and Crusher is both of them, part of their identity is linked to their relationship with these two men, Mm. right? That Troy now, they make a big deal out of her relationship with her Imzadi. And uh, (laughs) Crusher has this secret past with a card. Now, the nice thing about the secret past with Picard is it kind of gets, you know, it, it they, you could get some good stuff there. Right. But with the Riker, the Riker Troy. Mm, you know, Captain, we used to date in high school. <laughs> oh, that's right. You two worked together before. Yeah, that's what you call it. <laughs> for, I know at the end of the series, the two of them get married, right? Yeah, in the, the movies. In the movie, yeah. They get married. Which, which is, I don't know how much of a payoff that really is, but. Um, but then there's a love triangle too, because isn't she, isn't she into Worf for a while? Yes, in the later episode, later seasons, she and Worf will have uh, a relationship, which is much more interesting to me than. than I Riker. would agree. I absolutely agree. The Riker Troy relationship is also very painfully obvious, and and it's just too easy. Right. You know, it becomes fun when her mother comes on board. It becomes fun when Worf gets into it. Mm-hmm. You know that then it becomes interesting. But it is kind of, uh, you know, we're going to set this up. This is going to be a really fascinating plot point. Hey, kids, look out for this. And there's that horrible moment when they're down on the on the bandy planet where she's right. like, be careful if anything were to happen to you. And then he has to say, do your job. <laughs> Come so here, do your job. You're so mean. You're, you're wearing your emotions on your sleeve. <laughs> hey, you know who else is in this episode? Uh, oh, uh, no. John Delancey as Q. Of course. My favorite. Q, a reoccurring character mm-hmm. who I think is an interesting foil in many ways. And it is kind of weird that he's omnipotent. And this is what he does with his time. Mm. But here he is. And there will be another L.A. Law connection. Yes, you know it. This is another weird choice for, for a first episode, I think, to start with Q. Well, I think he's one of my favorite characters in the whole series. It's a weird way to start it. It's like giving you everything in the beginning. We're gonna make a we're gonna make a god like character be the first hurdle that the ship has to get over as a you right. know, as a crew together to 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 deal with this this unstoppable force. And it just seems like a weird place to begin. It's like, what are you gonna do after that? Like, how do you really top a cue? Because this happens a lot, I think, in the first season, too. They rehearse what the prime directive is. I mean, that comes up mm-hmm. two or three different times. And there's even a in the, the most offensive episode ever. Picard, Picard even says that, you know, oh, I'm speech making. He's like, stops himself. And he's like, well, I just said it, what everyone knows. And I don't need to keep saying it. It's like, yeah, no, you don't. We get it. But it is sort of an on-ramp for new viewers, and yeah. it does gives them an excuse to sort of rehearse the whole mission of Starfleet yeah. and who these people are. But, so, but, but this is the kind of thing that I remember my young self being highly irritated about, because what I loved about the original show was that this kind of political nonsense was all wrapped up in really great action sequences. Yes. For, and and lots of lots of punching and shooting and, and especially right. for especially for TV at that time and and just TV in general there's there aren't very many exciting TV shows you know pre 90s that that have any sense of action i just remember thinking on this first episode man i mean this is like i feel like i feel like it's cool i like that we're back here but at the same time i'm feeling like i'm feeling like i'm getting a, like a lesson I'm having to learn something about right, and and I I think 
you know, it's great to have great art that teaches something and, and the, you know, the message can be in there. And I, I just think the heavy hand that next gen uses oftentimes is a bit much. And I, I think you'll see later on some of the episodes when the show really gets going and it's really superb in the writing, mm-hmm. they, they get away from this kind of stuff, this preachy bullshit about expansionism across the universe. I mean, there's... Well, and the trial metaphor, this is, going back to my Doctor Who, you know, connection, there was a season of Doctor Who before they uh, finally canceled the original series that was Trial of a Time Lord. And the idea was that the show was literally on trial. Right. Like they're they're trying to get rid of the show and it's struggling in the ratings. And, and is that this? Is this the same kind of? And there's a lot of Star Trek Doctor Who crossover. Mm-hmm. But the, this whole notion of the trial, like here is this new series. Certainly it's under trial. So I, I can understand where they were going with that. What I do think is remarkably well done is the way that the mystery of what's going on at Farpoint, mm. it draws you away from Q that I almost forgot he was in the episode. I mean, I remember when I was watching it as a 21 year old, I guess, thinking like, oh, hey, look, that guy's back. I forgot all about that because I was really into what was going on there. It's like there's something going on. Can we figure out what it is? I, I actually saw it the other way. I, I just remember the episode being so Q heavy that when I went back this last time to see it, I forgot about the whole Farpoint mystery. I just thought it was, I just remembered it being Q putting the Enterprise on trial. And right. I, I forgot that there was this other story. And I think when you when you watch it again, you can see that there was, there was a lot of craft in, in creating that story and then, and then weaving Q into it. It's a well-written script and it's, it's interesting. It's just that I, it, it does make me wonder why Roddenberry would choose these certain things to begin the whole show with and and again i mean it's it's the show is not subtle and especially in these these first uh few seasons it's not subtle and they will come back to it i mean the final episode of the of the series all good things you know they come back to this trial and this this situation with q yeah they do they they book in the whole series with that and they recreate that whole that whole trial set and it's been a while since I've seen it, so I'm hoping that courtroom scene doesn't have... I mean, at some point, I feel like I'm watching an Oingo Boingo video from the 80s, right? You, you have the Asian man, you have the little people in there. And you're like, really? There's, there's no little person anywhere on the ship, right? Well, that's what happens after the nuclear holocaust. That's 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 your Mad Max world right there when things have really gone off the rails. But yeah, the nightmare scenario is an Asian man and a little person. I'm yeah, just why saying, aren't there, why, aren't there, why aren't there little people on the Enterprise? Think about that. No, right. And especially through the experience of having Dinklage be as amazing mm-hmm. as he has been on Game of Thrones. Yeah, they, they really could have broken a lot more barriers. And I, I'm not trying to, add, you know, I, they could have broken a lot of barriers in a million different ways. Well, right. Well, that's that, that's this whole argument, though, that they're like, you know, these like we're in this future. Have they bred out all these imperfections? And is everybody in the future like this perfect specimen human being? And here's 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 the part where you're going to have to edit out that part, because you can't say it's an imperfection. <laughs> I'm saying the show's saying that. There's a moment for editing for Dave. (laughs) Well, yeah, and they're monstrous. They're monstrous in some way, or at least they're meant to be eerie or creepy or, yeah. I mean, that that does, and the the Asian guy too, that does bother me because there are no Asians on that crew. There's a lot of white folk on that bridge crew. Still, after all these years. Yeah. 
And then Q dressing up like Columbus is also, I mean, there's the, you can see the Reagan Bush era politics, right. you know, they're not, they're not free of a lot of these right. things now. And of course it's easy to do it. It's easy to sit here and go, Oh, look at that. Well, That's incorrect. He also plays the soldier who's like, hopped up on some kind of right. smack. Well, that he <laughs> soldier smack is this ripcord thing that he pulls up to his nose and like, it, it could, that that right there just comes out of the 80s like cocaine snorting era that sure, whole like this, sure. this whole little idea that there's like some mini spoon that's embedded in your <laughs> in your in your army uniform that you would like snort out of total 80s los angeles it's hard to I, it's hard to choose but there are some painful painful bits in here and the one i want to focus on mm. is when riker meets data i mean that is just he goes into the holodeck like he's never been on one before. Okay, maybe it is a new thing. It seems to me that that kind of technology, they'd be like all over the place for mar- you know, for amusement and so on. He's crazy into it. He mm-hmm. can't believe there's such a thing. But that is such an awkward and painful exchange between the two of them. Right. Especially his – he can't whistle. Data can't whistle. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Because- whistling is somehow innately human right yeah think about all the dumb stuff that people can do and then he can he leaps out of the tree in that sequence and it totally surprises Riker. like you know how could you do that how could you leap from here to there but you can't whistle you can't whistle yeah you can't whistle well it's just trying to show that poor data is in search of his humanity his human side and why he wants to give this all up to be human why in a show about universal acceptance, are we privileging that humanity for data? Yeah, there you go. I think that's interesting. I don't believe that this is the one android in the whole universe. This technology that they can fly at, do you know how hard it would be? Well, nobody knows how hard it'd be to fly at warp speed. You're like bending time and space. But this is the first android you've been able to come up with? doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I had lunch today with a friend of mine who was telling me that he was on a cruise ship and they had robots mixing drinks. Yeah. And he said what was really sad was there was a woman whose job it was, and she would have to sort of crawl along the floor to refill <laughs> the bottles to make sure the robot had all the bottles it needed. Uh-huh. Had, and you would punch in, you know, I, I want a vodka tonic. And the stupid robot hands would then grab the vodka and the tonic and mix you a vodka tonic. Coming right up, sir. Yeah. <laughs> but data, now. Nah. Now, it's you know, and this is where you get your first glimpse of the painful, awful Riker. That whole you know, nice to meet you, Pinocchio. I, I don't know what you do with that. Is it supposed to show how hip and cool he is that he remembers five million years in the future? He remembers Pinocchio. That's that's what stuck with him. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know what they. I don't think they knew what they were doing with that guy. I, I honestly feel like they. I mean. He does a lot of stuff behind the scenes in the show, and he's probably done more for the show as a director and producer of the show. Jonathan Frakes, yes. Yeah, yes. Jonathan Frakes. Than any of these other people, okay? And he's 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 all about Star Trek. So it, it's I think they thought they were getting this young, suave dude. And, and the guy that showed up was a little smarter than that and didn't really fit into the character mold that they had created for him. So right. he's he's constantly saying things that don't seem right or – you know, he, he seems like he should be the captain of the ship all the time. It's like, why do you have two two of these captains? It's, it's, it is very awkward. It is very awkward. He is in some ways castrated by by Picard. He, he's, you know, he's just not as potent as he could be. Yes. And then 
they have him doing yeah. like really dumb things like playing the trombone and the way he sits in a chair yeah. and he's going to get some really great episodes you know before too long you've got a track when he starts sitting in the chair that way oh he always sits in the chair that way for the very beginning he hasn't done it yet he hasn't done it yet i've been thinking about keeping track of things that i love and that's definitely going to be on there like how many times has he saddle horse that chair and, and, and if you don't know what we're talking about really hit youtube and just look up Riker sitting or sit like Riker. Riker versus chair. Yeah, it is. It is Riker v chair. He is incapable of just taking a seat. He always has to climb over the back of the seat. And it's he, it's it's awkward. He's got to command that chair. He's got to command something. He's not going to command the Enterprise. He's going to command that chair. But like I said, there are, there'll be some good episodes with him later on as soon as they figure out that he is not Captain Kirk. Oh, no, no. Yeah, he does have. He had one of my favorite episodes. He is first contact and he's all over that thing. It's yes. Uh, very good. Very good. Breaker. You want to talk about the saucer section? Well, the, here's the here's a favorite line that I rehearse. I, I, I have to say I have to. This and one is Wesley Crusher is brought up onto the bridge by Beverly Crusher, the doctor. And Wesley's like, what is he, 12 or 13 or something? And he end, right. he end, he'll end up being a you know a, a more important character in the show, but he's a kid at this point. And for some reason, Picard doesn't like kids, but has been given the helm of a ship that's loaded with families. It's a family ship, and so there's like hundreds of families on the ship, kids. And so Wesley's brought up, and and Picard sees Wesley in the elevator without without. It's like Beverly's off to the side, so he just sees the door opens up, and and there's Wesley Crusher, twelve year old Wesley. And he says, he says, what the hell? There are no children allowed on the bridge. You know, so he yells at this kid. He kind of dresses him down and then. (laughs) (laughs) Can I, can I, can I ask you why your Picard sounds like he has tuberculosis? You really, (laughs) you've got to listen to Picard. He, you can do it like this. You can do like, what the hell? There are no children allowed on this bridge. And then it's like too much. But if you really listen to him talk, he's got this gravelly sound in his voice. He's like, Commander Wharf. It is easily the most amazing voice I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, and, you don't get to do the, a Christmas carol by yourself without a voice like that. Yeah, and I saw that decades ago. I saw that when he was doing Christmas carol by himself. Oh, really? Uh, I saw that live here, you know, and it was just astounding. And that voice, you know, that voice in, in real life is very commanding. Yeah, it's definitely very commanding. But my, my my favorite line, though, outside of that, is there's this part where Data. It's a, it's a really well written line, and Data says he goes he goes sorry, sir. I seem to be <laughs> I seem to be commenting on everything, and it's like this funny kind of nod to like the Spock talk that Spock always did. But yeah, it's the expository dialogue. It's the expository dialogue that we're going to hear way too many times in these first few episodes, but at least they're trying to be aware of it. I know. I think that's a funny, I think that's a funny nod to it because you know, he does that through the whole series, but it's funny that they point that out right at the beginning. I I like that. We haven't even talked about the excitement of the, the phaser. Uh, Now, especially the first couple of seasons where the, uh, the, Phasers look like dustbusters, but yeah. here they have their little mini phasers. And when they first shot that phaser, I was so excited. I'm like, I need to see more of these phasers. And we didn't. Yeah, even she, see, did we see a tricorder in this episode? I don't think so. Not yet, because we Beverly didn't have a lot of time. She wasn't. I don't think she's in the sick bay. Well, she? Data has one too, and I just love right. that tricorder design. That tricorder design. I don't even know why I love it as much as I do. I just do. I love the way it opens. I love the sound effect when it opens. Like it, 
when it opens, I just love that thing. And it, it just makes sense that it wouldn't be this giant, you know, cassette recorder purse that Spock carried around. Right. But I never understood. There's a couple of awkward devices. One of them is a new phaser. And the other one is, yeah. we'll see in that episode called The Game, when he, they have the palm beacon. And it's a flashlight that you have to hold with your arm at such a weird angle. Oh, yeah. I remember that. It makes no <laughs> sense. You know, why couldn't you just hold it the way you hold the phaser? That's the only time that grip makes sense. You hold like a gun. We don't have guns like that in the future. I think we've been fair to encounter at Farpoint. We have given it a lot of a lot of grief in some areas, some of the painful parts, mm-hmm. but it's because of the love. Mm-hmm. And we, we love this show. Oh, it's all about them. And as painful as that is, we stuck with it for, what, six, seven seasons and movies. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. see if we can do that all over again, though. That's the whole trick. That's the trick. But I, I do have to say that, that, you know, meeting this new crew, I was very excited. I was interested in data and what was going on there. I was very curious at what some of the other crew interactions were going to be as much as I hated others. Agreed. I, I, I definitely remember sticking with it. I was super excited about it. I was willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I, in retrospect, I really love the show. Well, this is our love of Encounter at Farpoint. This is our love of Star Trek The Next Generation. Any final words, Dave? I'm looking forward to episode two, actually. I'm 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 excited to jump into the next the next uh, the next episode and to talk about whatever else we didn't cover this time. Excellent. So we'll see you next time for STTNG's not another Star Trek podcast. Jeez, is wrong with you people? Engage. <laughs> That's it. Engage. Giddy up, Commander. I'll have a manual talking. Oh, we didn't even talk about that part. How stupid that is. On the next thrilling episode of your new favorite podcast, STTNG's Not Another Star Trek Podcast, we go even further off topic than anyone has gone before. This is City Alpha 5. Kirk, I grapple with thee. Anton Dave will reveal his true purpose. Look at the, what they do to him in this first episode. This is a kid. So you're telling me that for you, this podcast is a charitable mission. You're going to redeem Wesley Crusher. Those lovable cadets, Dave and Andrew, work blue while Data gets busy. Programmed in multiple techniques and a broad variety of pleasuring. And I take you back to the first episode when we first meet Data. He can't whistle, Pop Goes the Weasel. And after all that, they'll dig into the wonders of being Deanna Troy. I feel great. Oh, God, I feel great sadness <laughs> in Zani. It's, it's, she's just kind of stating what she's feeling. So take a ride with STTNGs as we strip down the naked now. Where's your Montalban? Where's your Montalban? Who's this guy?